Amen. Isaiah 55 this morning. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. This is one of those most glorious chapters in the Bible. I've just rejoiced at being able to have the privilege to preach this last Lord's Day and then again this morning. It's one of the sweetest passages, um, but it's important to understand it in its context, right? The whole first 39 chapters of this book were characterized generally by the justice of God by his display of his justice and his judgment against sin. And he promised that he would bring. And in fact, looking back, we can see how he has fulfilled that promise in so many ways. He promised that he would bring judgment upon wicked nations in the world. He promised that he would bring judgment even upon his own, uh, his own nation, the nation of Israel. For their sins and their disobedience. God is a just God, let me tell you, friends. He is a righteous and holy God. And no sin, let me tell you again, no sin will ever go unpunished in God's world. It will not. But then we came to chapter 40. And beginning in chapter 40, there is a kind of turn. And in the... Chapter 40 and following, the Lord unfolds for us the hope of salvation in a grand way. And that hope, that salvation is centered in a figure who is called the servant of the Lord, the servant of Jehovah, the Messiah. And he was presented to us again and again throughout this section. Back in chapter 42, we saw the sanctified servant or the servant who was chosen by God, set apart, filled with God's Holy Spirit for a special task of saving a people. Then in chapter 49, we saw his saving work to bring Jacob back to himself and to extend his salvation to the Gentiles and to the nations of the world. In chapter 50, we saw the submissiveness of this servant, his yieldedness to the will of God in heaven, how he came to do the Father's will with all of his body. He gave his back to be stricken. He gave his ear to hear the word of God and his mouth to proclaim it. He was completely and totally obedient to God's will. He was a submissive servant. And then in chapter 53, we came to really what was, is the climax of all of this revelation about the servant, and that is that he would be a suffering but successful servant. That he would suffer under the wrath of God that was unfolded for all of those 40 chapters. That he would suffer under the wrath of God for the sins of his people. That he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, with his wounds, we can be healed. This is the gospel of substitutionary atonement in the suffering servant of the Lord. And not only would he suffer for sins in a way to make salvation possible, but he would be successful in saving a people unto God. And in the second half of that chapter, we read that 
The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. His life will be prolonged and he will see his offspring. A great number of brothers just like himself united to him, made right with God, reconciled to God because the wrath of God is taken away. This is the gospel. This is the heart of the Christian message. And in the last two chapters, chapters 54 and now chapter 55, we've kind of come to the application of all of this. And that is these commands, these appeals to people to respond to the message, to respond to the Christian gospel. In chapter 54, that response was a command to rejoice at the worldwide fruitfulness of the Messiah's work. Enlarge the place of your tent for he will have a people from every corner of the globe filling his great house. And fear not, he says in that chapter, because your sins will be remembered no more. He says, fear not, for I will vindicate you. I will justify you. I will be your righteousness. And then we came last week to chapter 55 that continues to call us to respond to this gospel message to respond to the Word of God. It's a call to every person who is dying spiritually of hunger and thirst. And the command goes out universally, come, come to the fountain, come to the water of life. Drink and live. The water of life is given to you freely. You know, we take for granted the ability to access good, clean water, don't we? We really do. We turn on the tap and there it is. It has not always been so. Think of all of the wars in the world, all of the conflicts uh, regionally that have been fought over water, and there may be yet more to come. Water becomes more difficult to access in some parts of the world. Think of Jacob's wells, and he had to fight with, with the people of that area to be able to access. But the Lord says, I've provided a fountain for you a free fountain for all who are willing to come, for all who are hungry and thirsty. I've given a feast. I've given a fountain of life. You may come, but you have to come. Come, he says, and drink of the water and come further in and drink wine and drink milk without uh, payment and without price. Enjoy the the joy and the richness of the gospel that is paid for by Jesus Christ. Friends, sit down to the table. There is a lavish spread of rich food. But in order to enjoy the feast, in order to live unto eternal life, you have to do something. And the Lord said it in these words, Come, come, eat. And this is a reminder that not everyone in the world will be saved indiscriminately. For not all feel that hunger and not all satisfy themselves at the table of the Lord. He says, come, come and eat. The reality behind all of this is very clear. The Lord says, come, come to the feast, come to the fountain. But he's really saying, come to me. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. I am the wine and the milk that nourishes and delights your soul. Come to me. Incline your ear to me, he says. Hear 
Listen diligently to me. You feast with your ears, right? This is the ear gate by which you receive the word of God. Incline your ear. He says, lean into the gospel, to the word of God and live. So if you're going to eat, and if you're going to be satisfied with God's salvation, you must do something initially. And it's, if you go back, just let's, let's take a look at the first five verses of chapter 55. It's repeated five times in this passage. What must we do? We must come, right? Come, 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 he says. Leave your own position and come move in your soul towards the Lord. Leave where you are and come, which implies which implies a change of mind. It implies a, a change of mind. In fact, he reasons with us this way. Why do you spend your money for that which is not food? Why do you labor to get that in the world that does not satisfy unto everlasting life? You need to have a change of mind about this. You need to leave what you were spending your money on. You need to leave where you were living, and you need to come. As long as you are so deluded to think that these other things will satisfy, you will not come to Christ. And today, in verses 6 and following, he continues on that and enlarges that theme of a, of a change of mind, of a movement away from something and towards the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is offered in the servant of Jehovah. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6. Let's read it together. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, and the unrighteous man His thoughts, and let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on him, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose of that shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Verse 12, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the, the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. There is, in verses 6 and 7, a call. A call to what? How would you summarize the call, the command in verses 6 and 7? Is it not a command to repent? This is a call to repentance. Seek the Lord while He may be found. 
Call upon Him while He is near. Right? That sounds like just a restatement of verses 1 to 5. Come, come, come. But this coming to God also demands a leaving. So this, is, this morning's sermon, this really is the flip side of the sermon from last week. Coming Again, I say, coming to God means leaving something else behind. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 7. Let the wicked, what? Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Coming to God, coming to the fountain, coming to the feast means forsaking your sin. You cannot have God and what is ungodly. You cannot go east and west. You must turn from one to seek after the other. That is God's word for us this morning. If you would come to Him, you must forsake your unrighteous deeds and your wicked thoughts. You cannot have both. Repentance. Repentance is a fundamental change of mind that is manifest in a change of heart, a change of life, a change of direction, a change of behavior. And in fact, both of those are in view here. He says, let the wicked forsake his way. That is, his wicked behavior. And let the unrighteous man, he says, forsake his thoughts. That is the unrighteous beliefs and values and determinations that we make in our minds that lie actually behind our ways. This is a call to repent of unrighteous thoughts and wicked ways. And the kinds of sins that Israel was engaging in, you can read them in the prophets, Again and again and again, the Lord commands them to repent of their sin, to turn from their ways. But the kinds of sins that Israel was charged to repent of are often the same kinds of things that characterize the rebellion of people today against the Lord. The sins of idolatry that is, being more devoted to something in creation than to the Creator. The sin of false worship, of imagining God in some way other than what He has revealed Himself to be. The sin of formalism. How often did the prophets condemn these people for their formalism? Worshiping God in form drawing near to Him with their mouth while their heart was far from Him. For the sin of profaning the Sabbath day, of thinking little of the worship of the Almighty God and their Redeemer. They were condemned for the sin of taking unjust advantage of others. Again, over and over through through lying, misrepresentation, 
cheating, really? They were condemned for the sin, the many sins of sexual immorality or adultery or divorce or fornication and for even adopting the many sexual perversions of the pagan peoples around them. Sometimes even in the context of religion, they were condemned, they were called to repent of sexual immorality and of grumbling discontent with what God had allotted them. How often did these people look enviously upon the nations around them when God himself was their portion. You find, even you who are God's people, do you find that these sins sometimes characterize you? The call this morning is to forsake our ways and our thoughts that are not the Lord's to Israel and to us. He says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And there is an implied warning here, I think, in this passage, right? Do you see it? It's implied, perhaps when he says, seek the Lord, what? While he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And the implication is what? Well, that there may come a day when he will not be found. There may come a day when he will not draw near. Beware any who say to himself in his own delusion, any who says to himself, you know what? I will repent when I'm done sinning. Oh, my friend, listen, please. Hear me, forsake your sin and seek the Lord while he may be found. It would be a fearful day. You came to the day when he will no longer be found by you and he would be far from you. But he says, well, I thought the scripture says in Psalm 145 verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon Him in truth. Well, that is certain. True enough. But what makes you think that you will ever desire to call upon Him in truth? What makes you presume that when you're done sinning, when you've lived for yourself for a while and done what you want, that you will ever desire to come back to Him? Oh, you are in a dangerous place if you would tell yourself that lie. 2 Timothy 2.25, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Are you going to take the chance at the risk of your eternal damnation? If God is speaking to you now, 
If he's drawn near to you, if he's convicting you about your sin, friend, you better repent while you can. I do wonder and I do fear if perhaps the conviction, even even perhaps the conviction that you feel for your sin right now this morning, if perhaps this may be the last time you ever feel conviction, if perhaps this may be the last time you ever think that the gospel makes sense, if perhaps this may be the last time that your conscience is ever bothered, that this may be the last time that you entertain the idea that the Bible is in fact true. Listen, seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Don't harden your hearts. Today, hear His voice. As long as it is today, hear, receive what the Lord is telling you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. But for those who do hear His voice, And for those who do respond with repentance, there is amazing hope in this passage. There is such sweet assurance. Look at the end of verse 7. It says, let him return to the Lord that he may have what? Oh, isn't that sweet? That he may have compassion on him. And let him return to our God for he will abundantly pardon Those who really turn to God like this, in true faith and repentance, those people will find abundant pardon at the throne of heaven. That is a word to hang your soul on. How often have I hung my prayers on this very verse? You need His compassion. You see that in this verse. This is what we might... Think of as the the subjective nature of God's mercy. The compassion that's in His heart towards those who are His. Those who come in repentance. Like the prodigal son's father who, while his son was yet a great way off, sees his son coming and the Bible says he was moved with compassion. And he rose and ran to meet his son and hugged him and kissed him and rejoiced over him. This is what you receive when you come to God in repentance. In true spirit-wrought repentance. It is compassion. And it is pardon. Not just sentiment that God is about. Not just that he sort of you know, sentimentally inclined to you. That's not the compassion here. This compassion is is a compassion of pardon. He will objectively pardon your trespasses. This word, pardon here, is used over and over again in the Pentateuch in connection with the sacrifices that were offered. And when the people would offer the sacrifices, God would see those sacrifices and pardon their sin. As they came to him in repentance and humility and confession of their sin, over that sacrifice, his righteousness was satisfied in the atonement that he himself provided. And friends, that's the way, the only way that, sacri- that pardon can be offered to any of us is because of 
the objective satisfaction of the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus Christ and in His sacrificial death on behalf of His people. His sacrifice made it possible. That sacrifice that we read about in Isaiah 53, that's what makes it possible for God to be a God of pardon. And if you will repent and seek His face, earnestly seek His face, I tell you, you will find Him again and again and again to be a God of compassion and a God whose pardon is faithful and steadfast. Maybe there's somebody who says, you know, you don't know the depths, Pastor. You don't know the depths of my sin. You don't know the ugliness of my heart. You don't know the wickedness of my thoughts. Can there be pardon yet reserved for me? That's why I love that he says, if you return to our God, he will what? What's the next word? Abundantly pardon. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Let not the depth of your sin, the ugliness of your soul, hold you back from God, but drive you to Him in humility and dependence on Christ. There is abundant pardon. The riches of His mercy are greater, far greater, than the debt of your sin. Your sin is no match for the mercy that is bought by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So run to Him. Repent of your sin. He stands ready with abundant pardon if you will forsake and come to Him. Now, in verses 8 and following, He supports this call to repentance with three considerations. They're each introduced with the word for in English. You look at verse 8, you see that it's the first word of that verse in most translations. Verse 10 and verse 12, each begin with the word for. These are three supporting considerations that should encourage us and move us and Show us the need to run to God with repentance for pardon and salvation. First of all, consider the reason to repent in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, for my thoughts. Here's why you should run to Him. Here's why you should forsake. Why? Because my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now notice, these are the same two dimensions of wickedness that we were called to forsake earlier, right? Our thoughts and our ways. Why are we called to forsake those thoughts and those ways? These particular thoughts and these particular ways. Why must we forsake them? God's answer is because they're not my thoughts and they're not my ways, right? These ways are characteristic of the wicked and the unrighteous. 
because of the fact, by virtue of the fact, that they are not God's. Any ways that are not God's ways are wicked ways. Any thoughts that are not God's thoughts are unrighteous thoughts. So he says, these are the thoughts and the ways to abandon because they are not mine. God and his revelation are the standard for all human behavior and all human thinking. Listen, you and I are not independent, autonomous creatures who are free to just make up our own minds about things. We are creatures. And we are sinful creatures at that. We have no right to think and decide and evaluate apart from God. To do so is foolish and ignorant, culpably ignorant. We are not free to act apart from God. We must think his thoughts and we must walk in his ways. There is no other choice for us. You know, the great fault of sin is not just that it harms us. You now it does that, right? Do you, have you not seen the harm that sin has caused to people? Absolutely. But the great fault of sin is not simply that it harms us. The great fault of sin is that we are acting as if we are independent of God himself. That we are wiser than our creator. Remember the very first sin. The temptation is you will, if you eat of the tree that God has reserved, you will be like God, deciding for yourself what is good and evil. No need to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You make up your own mind. And I'll tell you, when you're in the greatest spiritual danger, listen to me, you are in the greatest of spiritual dangers when you begin to think, you know, I know what the Bible says, but I think, dot, dot, dot. I know what the Bible says, but I feel, I know what God says, but I can't imagine that, I know what God says, but, no, you will only be safe Mentally and spiritually and morally, you will only be safe as you yield your own thinking about anything to God's word and revelation. That's the way to be safe. It's the only way to be safe. You and I need to repent because God's thoughts are not our thoughts and His ways are not our ways. And any, to any extent that that's true, we need to come to Him this morning and lay it all out before Him and say, Lord, I have not been thinking Your thoughts. I've been thinking my own thoughts. I have not been walking in Your ways. I have been making my own way. And oh God, this is a great evil. For You are God. Verse 9 enlarges on this need for repentance by saying... For as the heavens are higher than the earth, you know, just imagine the vast distances of space. How high are the heavens above the earth? We don't even know, right? But he says, by way of comparison, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
And in the context here, I don't think this is about God's innate incomprehensibility as God, but rather about the distance of ourselves from Him because of our sin. For we have departed from His ways and His thoughts. And so the distance between us by sin is as the distance between the heavens and the earth. Our pretended autonomy creates a nearly infinite chasm between us and our God because we presume to think independently of what is and what has been revealed and to act independently of our Creator and Sovereign. But He calls us to repent And what a wonder it is that the grace that comes through repentance in Jesus Christ, that that grace is able to span such a chasm as the distance between the heavens and the earth. That's the grace that you're invited to, called to come to again and again. Now secondly, consider verses 10 and 11 the encouragement to repent here. 4, verse 10, here's that second 4. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It will accomplish, it will succeed, it will not return empty. What is this? This is a reminder of the efficacy, the effectiveness of God's Word, right? One author said, The Word of God is the unfailing agent of the will of God. That's what he's saying here. But why is this here, do you think? Why does he say this in the context of calling us to repent of our unrighteous thoughts, of our ungodly ways? Well, I think it's here, if you remember, the reality behind all of the metaphors back in verses 1 to 5. Come, eat, feast, drink, right? Behind all of those metaphors, what is God really calling us to? Well, He's calling us to Himself, right? He's the bread, He's the water, He's the milk, He's the wine. But He's calling us specifically to hear Him. Remember this last week? To listen to Him. To incline our ear. To lean in. To be submissively open to His Word. To be yielded to what He has to say. To trust Him in what He's revealed. Now, this means that we're going to have to repent of our own independent thinking and trust His Word. Just as Israel had to rely upon God's Word that came to her throughout this prophecy, God's Word about the judgment of the nations, the destruction of Babylon, the future of the great city, all of the other nations around them, so too we must rely upon God's Word about the salvation that we can have from sin, about the continuation 
of God's work in all of us, about the return of our Lord and the consummation of all things, we have to rest in the certainty, the surety of that word. This is what encourages us. The effectiveness of God's word to bring about his every purpose is what encourages us to hear, to incline our ear. Whatever God determines must surely come to pass. Thus it was and thus it will ever be. So trust his word, friend, and lean not on your own understanding. This is the encouragement to repent of our own thinking. It is the word, the decree of God that will surely be done. We'd better align ourselves with his word because his word will surely come to pass. And finally, he urges us to consider the future hope of those who are repentant. In verses 12 and 13. Here's the third four. The third consideration to support this command to forsake our wicked way and return to the Lord. He says, for if you repent, if you hear God's voice, if you lean in and you hear His word and you trust His purpose that will that is manifested in His word, if this is you, then you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. You will go out. You hear this language? You will be led forth. This is the language of what? This is the language of the Exodus. This is the language of deliverance from exile in Babylon. You will go out with joy and be led forth. And it's used now to refer to that great end time exodus of repentant people from all around the globe who are streaming out of this sinful world and into the new Jerusalem. The call of the gospel to leave the world behind. You shall go out and be led forth. You shall go out with what? You shall go out with joy. Ironically, The Lord promises joy as they leave behind the sin and the world that they once loved. Right? The the, the thing that they looked to for their security. The place where they, that was the only thing they'd ever known. And they're leaving all that behind. Forsaking all of the world in order to trust His promise. And to follow Him and to come near to the Lord. And to be where He is. Ironically, it is leaving behind what you looked to for joy in the past that is the only place to really find joy. Blessed, Jesus says, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God's repentant people have always found that to be true. After turning our back on our own sin, That's when we experience the greatest of all joys. That's when we experience the lightness and the freedom and the joy of God's forgiveness. And we say to ourselves, oh, why did I continue so long in slavery? You shall go out with joy. 
There's a deliverance. There's a delight. There's a glory in that. And you, friend, listen to me. You could know that kind of joy today if you would heed His Word, forsake your way, and return to the Lord. and He will have compassion on you. The joy that you long for comes from leaving the very thing you've been looking to for your joy and security. Listen to me, because somebody needs to hear that this morning. The joy that you long for comes from leaving the very thing that you used to look to for your joy and security. Turning back to your God, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Led forth. By whom? Well, by the Lord. By the Lord Himself, right? He's the one who led His people out of Egypt. He's the one who led them through the wilderness. He's the one who went before them in the pillar of cloud and fire. It will be led forth in peace. The Lord personally leads the way for all His penitent people. He prepares a table for them in the wilderness and water for them from the rock. And listen, that's not to say that the pilgrim path of penitence is going to be easy. But the Lord Himself will lead us through it. If we will turn from our way and walk in His way. And these people, He says in verse 12, these penitent people will be led into a new land. A new heavens and a new earth where even the created world will be transformed. And he says it this way, even the mountains and the hills will break forth into singing. 